welcome to Mindwave. We are continuing our Humanity First series again today, and we are pleased to welcome Chet Gaines. Chet, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, man. So uh, this is all about uh, Andrew Yang and your uh, journey into the Yang Gang, but let's just take a while to get to know you. Like, what's your backstory? Yeah. Um, so, like, as far as uh, educational stuff, uh, my background's in anthropology. Um, I majored in anthropology with a minor in religious studies and uh, did a little bit of graduate level work in anthropology and just decided I didn't want to pursue that, at least not for right now. Um, sort of an activist background, I've uh, participated in uh, the Zeitgeist movement. That was kind of one of the early things that got me pretty convinced that we, you know, we need to be active and engaged with uh, the automation phenomenon and how that's going to affect our economy. Um, I also participated in Occupy and uh, a lot of other uh, smaller efforts like Food Not Bombs, things like that. So um, that's, that's kind of the direction I'm coming from. Nice. I actually, you're like the fifth person to mention Zeitgeist Movement, and it's something that I obviously need to look into now because I've I've just heard other people talk about it. I haven't actually looked into that, so I have I have homework to do. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I, it was it was an interesting effort, and actually, it's it's still ongoing. Um, but a, a lot of us that were uh, participating in it early on kind of uh, went in different directions. This, you know, just kind of the nature of the activist world. But uh, no, they were uh, one of the first like early organized efforts to bring, uh, you know, wide scale attention to the automation problem and how we should adjust our economy to to benefit from it instead of having it screw us, you know. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it needs a whole episode <laughs> and a half, yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. I don't. I know you. Uh, talked to scott santons i don't know if he mentioned that he he was a part of that and uh i i couldn't tell you who all else was involved with that that's now uh supportive of yang but um it, definitely a lot of uh, i don't know parallel concerns between uh those efforts and the yang gang you know interesting yeah it's it's weird how many little uh how many root tendrils there are like and where, like, I came in through the intellectual dark web way. A lot of people came in through, um, like, it's just weird seeing where, like, like some people came in through the memeing and gaming way, the shit poster way, you know? Right. <laughs> They'll just found their way to this, like, core. It's, it blows my mind, man. It blows my mind. But, yeah, you are... A, like yeah fifth or sixth person mentioned that guys so i'm i'm gonna have to do my homework and i'm embarrassed for not knowing that so bad nerd. no no it was it was kind of an obscure thing i'll send you some material that i think you'll enjoy um but this is i think this is one of the ways you can know that like what we're talking about is actually super important is it it pulls people in from all these different directions um like when i first got turned on to ubi I really saw like a, a lot of potential for it to take root very fast and from a lot of different directions uh, because you already had all these arguments online 
uh, where people were arguing for UBI from the, you know, not only from like a leftist perspective like my own, but from like conservative perspective, libertarian perspective, uh, you know, from the more mainstream perspectives, like uh, just there were little nodes in each political camp that supported the idea. And, you know, it when you're looking at that, it occurs to you that like, man, if all those nodes got activated and connected, you'd have like half the country pushing for this thing overnight. And that's kind of what we have. Like now, uh, you know, since the Yang campaigns really brought it on the scene, like UBI is polling really well, um, almost half, I think. I think the last poll I saw was maybe 47% support or somewhere, uh, high 40s. Yeah. And that's pretty crazy. That's like a huge shift right away. And and the fact, like how many ideas can do that, can bring so many different, like diverse, per- particularly like politically diverse backgrounds to all come together and say yeah this is a good idea like we can't agree on fucking anything man (laughs) those are the ideas we need um exactly because i'm one of my big concerns is that um you know we're, we're in a really uh polarizing time we're in a really polarizing process a political process in the moment with all the the changes in our society and we could easily just pull everything apart and that's that's going to result in like an incredible amount of suffering and we don't want to do that so i think we need to be looking for those ideas that can that can help us stick together even if we're we're coming from different directions we can recognize like good ideas on their own merit without them having to be like oh this is a particularly leftist idea or this is a right-wing idea or you know uh i think a lot of those labels like Sometimes those labels can help you sort out ideas and, and navigate through them, but sometimes the, the labels create a lot of artificial barriers that, that don't have to be there. Yeah. Oh, man. See, it's, it's weird how, like, on the same page about some of the core stuff, MindWave, like, the directions that we're going, because we are going into, you know, like, the tribal identity problem and uh, how there's, you know, this just built-in, this rising clash between, you know, it's just, um, it's like groups are getting radicalized, like all over the fucking place. And it's just, it's nuts. It's crazy town. So there needs to be more of these conversations around ideas. Um, and the freedom dividend is a fantastic fucking idea. I mean, it's a no brainer, but I think the thing that's actually going to do it, that's going to bring the country together and win this fucking thing is humanity first. I don't, I don't think it's just the money. Because, you know, you look at the people who are fighting hardest for it. They're, like, fighting for other people to be able to have it, you know. Just, like, with a passion. Just to, like, they see what it could, could do for, like, the country and for, you know, ultimately the world. That's why we have Yang gangs popping up all over the world now. Because they, like, see the potential and they're like, yes, let's fucking do that. Um, and it's well, the humanity thing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's another thing that like really attracted me to Yang is, you know, I, I saw a lot of my own humanist values in his campaign and uh, just the notion that people should be more important than, you know, the economic metrics, like the, the economic metrics should reflect like the needs of, of the public rather than the other way around. Yeah, and especially in the, you know, richest country in the history of Earth. You know, we, we should be 
caring more about our citizens and it's it, this is just a, a basic fundamental core level shit you know that we don't we value profit over people and that's the root cause of fucking everything all the corruption all of the rest of that bullshit and it is going to take a cultural shift a massive cultural shift we have to get people out of apathy out of anger out of division just take this red team blue team bullshit and just knock that idea out of your brain because it's stupid and it's tearing us apart can we just let's work together man (laughs) right yeah no that's a that's a hard thing to do like i'm uh like i mentioned i'm i'm from like the left side of things i'm like from like the way far off the spectrum in the u.s left side of things Mm. and uh it's really you know there's a lot of uh what you might call like insular memes on that side of things. And there's, there's a lot of it just in any political camp um, stuff where like we, we stop being outward facing and we stop concerning ourselves. Uh, seriously. So where, where the hell were we? You were talking about um, having come, come from the left and some, some insular ideas. Let's kind of try to pick uh, up where, where we were yeah yeah i'm trying to trying to kind of put my head back in that space um so yeah i think we were talking about uh like you know the need to kind of hold things together rather than uh you know just becoming increasingly polarized um because yeah like i mentioned um i'm from like the way far left like my own my own political ideology that i identify with the most would be anarcho-communism which is like way off the American spectrum, right? Like oh, there's wow. no, there's no anarcho-communist candidate running for <laughs> any sort of office. Um, so that's like way out there. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, really uh, insular and polarizing memes that circulate in those circles uh, where like, you know, you start otherizing uh, basically the rest of the population. And I don't, I don't think that's like helpful. I don't think it's good for social well-being. I don't think it's like what actually moves us forward. Uh, so I mean, it's it's something that like we have we have to get past uh, those identifiers and uh, really meet people where they are and and talk about you know the principles that actually matter for uh, for myself with the kind of my ethical premise is is social well-being and increasing social well-being so that would be i'd be looking for uh where my own you know principles match up with other people along the lines of like how can we promote social well-being together hmm see that's really interesting i didn't i didn't know that about about your political ideology and that's actually one of the questions that's been floating around in the humanity first notes of to ask people because it is interesting but at the same time i'm like i've been kind of like eh, i don't know <laughs> i don't know how relevant that is it is definitely enlightening um but at the same time we are also trying to you know push this let's get rid of the tribal identifiers thing so it's uh helpful and not at the same time no i i agree um i I think like to the degree that there is utility in those types of labels like you can use them um but i'm sure you've like witnessed it like a million times where like the those labels aren't helpful and it makes people like conjure up enemy images and like it makes people imagine you're someone that you're not and 
So that's like, that's not a thing uh, I bring up in too many conversations. Uh, but yeah, I figure like in the context of this conversation, it's probably an interesting tidbit that, um, you know, uh, Yang appeals to people like all the way across the political spectrum, um, all the way to like the, the furthest lefty lefties that even exist. Like, I don't, I don't know if it gets too much further left than myself. <laughs> Um, oh, it does. It does. I, I would imagine. I, I don't think you're the kind of guy who's going to go punch somebody in the street or rip their hat off and, and burn it, you know? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's a left-right problem. <laughs> I, 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 oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I agree because these people aren't fucking leftists, but that's <laughs> where they claim to uh <laughs> yeah where they claim to live on the spectrum yeah so. no i mean i think um you know when you're when you're talking about like different tactics and stuff like that um i mean i don't know there's a lot of people that have a lot of concerns about authoritarianism and i feel like that the authoritarianism can manifest in, in nearly any political ideology and so that's something like we should be able to share those concerns together um and and be able to to push back against what what we perceive as authoritarianism yeah that's uh i mean that's kind of why i talk about it happening on the left because it does have that kind of authoritarian nature to it trying to shut down speech trying to uh you know intimidation tactics and sometimes even violence um and it and it is it is like a scary thing but yeah, we can totally shift off of that. Um, <laughs> do you know? Do you know Connor over at the Daily Discussion? Um, I don't think I do. His show's really interesting, bro. And uh, I had a fantastic fucking conversation with him the other night. We went for like an almost two hours. We were just drinking, and we got real, real deep into the the tribal <laughs> identifier stuff. And, uh, like, this is, this is, I'm going to do a whole series with him. Cause like I was, I'm what you, somebody would call a quote, non-believer or like an atheist or whatever. I reject that the, the terminology. I don't like it sure. um, because it allows people to put you in a box with everything else and assume they know everything about you. So yeah, we got it. We got just barely into, uh, this is going to be like multiple, multiple hour things now, but, uh, yeah, stay tuned for that one when it comes out. Cause I think you'll really enjoy it and then head over to his show. Cause it's like all about finding people that he disagrees with and like trying to use that as like a learning opportunity and a growth opportunity. It's like very like super smart and like respectful and shit and talks to all kinds of people that, that just like massively disagree with him. And he's coming from like a more of like a believer, like, like religious background. So I'm like science and religion. Very Boom. cool. Yeah. I th- yeah. I th- it's going to be rad. I think I, uh, have friended him at some point because that sounds really familiar. I think I've read some of that in my feed. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not too familiar. I'll keep an eye out for it. Yeah, for sure. He's a cool dude, man. So, uh, what, what was your journey into the Yang gang like? Um, at, at some point early 2018, uh, I, he popped on my radar. Just, I, you know, know a lot of people in the, the sort of the UBI community. So, uh, you know, there was a presidential candidate running on basic income. It, it 
bubbled up pretty quickly in my social media. Um, and I, I kind of uh, kept an eye on him for about a month and decided, like, no, nah, this is the most important thing we can be talking about this election cycle. So, so this is fun because our thing keeps getting uh, cut off because my computer's a piece of shit. So uh, if you'd like to help fix that, <laughs> head over to mindwave.media and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page to become a friend of the show by giving us some fucking money so we can get better shit. Just oh, be man. very friendly. <laughs> be very friendly with your dollars. Please. Uh, we were talking about your journey into the Yang Gang um, and him coming on your radar relatively early because you were already like into UBI. Yeah, so... Um... Kind of connecting back with some of the the earlier stuff I mentioned about like the Zeitgeist movement. Um, essentially, what we were talking about um, in TZM was a, a post scarcity economy, and I don't know if that's a term that's familiar to you. Oh yeah, Star Trek, I get it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically uh, kind of an economy of abundance. Uh, just to just to put it really briefly, and uh, you know. It's it's one thing to have some idea or have some like vague notions about how that economy might work, but it's it's another thing to have like some steps in between. How do we get from you know our present day economy to that that like beautiful Star Trek future? Right. And so I I spent a lot of time thinking about that problem and had like you know a bunch of like little ideas uh, that could help with that process, but. Um, in coming across UBI, I felt like it was kind of the biggest um, structural change that we could make in that direction towards an economy of abundance, towards like assuming that people should just have their needs fulfilled instead of, uh, I don't know, but, you know, making everyone submit to some sort of wage slave position in order to like hope to have their needs fulfilled on some level. So it's, um, right. Absolutely, so it, man. So yeah, like uh, UBI has been on my radar for a long time. And so, you know, a presidential candidate comes along and says something about UBI. I'm definitely paying attention. And uh, so, yeah, I, I got involved early. I uh, got a couple of friends, uh, you know, together and we uh, formed the Des Moines chapter pretty early on and uh, then made contact with the campaign. Uh, through the the Iowa State Chair, uh, his name's Al Womble. He's a super nice guy, and uh, has been super helpful in just uh, getting us organized and and making sure there's always you know some type of action we can be taking. And uh, so it was a it was a good feeling, uh, you know, getting involved early and uh, introducing just the idea that like uh, you, sh you should be entitled to a little bit of money just to survive to a lot of people who had never even considered that before. And it's, it's really introducing someone to like a whole new economic paradigm. Uh, but with this, with this tiny little tool, I, I see UBI as kind of a, a foot in the door to a larger conversation about what the, the future of our economy could really be. Um, yeah. cause it, it could be extremely kick-ass. Like that's just, we could have an amazing future. It could be the catalyst to set it off. And it's people, you know, they hear about it for the first time and they think it's too good to be true. And we need to be doing our very best to, uh, 
you know, make the case that no, like this is actually doable. We can actually do this. And this is the, the first step that will lead to the society that we all dreamed we'd be living in, you know, and it's just, it, it takes a, a, a fundamental shift at the cultural level, you know, to get these ideas in play, to get the public to care more. Cause I mean, I think that's, that's the biggest thing is that people are just, you know, stuck in, in nihilism and despair and they stopped caring about what happens at the top. Oh, it doesn't matter what I do, what I say, you know, a bunch of people, right. just, Oh, that, that I don't want to know what's on the news. Fuck that noise. I don't want to care about any of it. And so that that's what allowed this fucking cancer to grow. And it takes, you know, radically amazing ideas like this to wake people up to like, okay, there is a, there is a better path forward, but there's still, people are still kind of like, is this really possible? I'm like, absolutely guys. Like, yeah, we just, we need to get into the numbers with people and tell them that like, not only is this by the numbers extremely doable and good in a million different other ways, uh, but yeah, like we, we can do it. We can make this happen like 2021. It's not like a, and then they can't take it away. It's forever guys. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> No, I I think a big problem is um, we live in an economy that just assumes scarcity from the get-go. Like, I don't know if you've ever taken any economics courses, but, uh, you know, scarcity is like one of the things you talk about in the first five minutes. You talk about like this sort of law of scarcity or this like assumption uh, that uh, scarcity is sort of this uh, fundamental assumption that drives the rest of the economic model. And it also, you know, ends up shaping our mindsets and our worldviews and our behavior. And, you know, it's, it's really hard to get people out of that mindset when they're still in an economy that uh, just assumes everything is scarce and we're always going to have to fight each other, you know, tooth and claw just to, just to get by. And I think that's, that's really what Yang's bringing is a sort of, uh, a window into like what the mindset of abundance is like and you know like we can we can all win together instead of like having to push each other down and having winners and losers you can you can actually have an economy that serves everyone uh, efficiently and effectively and i think those you know if we had the right metrics we'd see that the outcomes of that type of approach are just far superior on every front like like to the individual to the environment, you know, and everywhere in between. So what are, what are some of the other ideas that he has that you're stoked on? Cause he's got a lot of them. Oh yeah. As a, uh, as a fewer forward looking person yourself, what are you excited about? Um, really, uh, the, the thing that I think is like the most profound about his platform, like even probably more so than the the basic income aspect is just the American scorecard is um, orienting the economy around those like real uh, tangible metrics of human well-being that actually matter to everyone. You know, your, your mental and physical health, uh, you know, your, your access to various services and whatnot. Um, to me, that's like really a, a very profound uh, reform for a capitalist economy 
um, because from the get-go, you know, uh, capitalism's been good for a few people, and then uh, you've got you know people at the bottom that are maybe not doing so hot under it, you know, and I think redefining our metrics and saying like this isn't just about you know the numbers but this is about like the the people that create those numbers to me that's that's just a, a hugely profound reform um would would possibly have more positive effects than the basic income and i think the positive effects of basic income probably can't be overstated um, so the the two of those things really uh, creating an economy of abundance that's oriented around human well-being, I I see those as like uh, fundamental building blocks for the the you know the Star Trek future that that ideal uh, post-scarcity economy that uh, you know is hopefully coming uh, because if it's not I think we're in trouble <laughs> I think there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of uh, there's a lot of social and ecological problems that I I don't want to be like over dramatic, but I really do think uh, the way we're structuring society now and the way we're kind of uh, headed towards a real collision course with the environmental forces, I, I think it could do us in this century. And assumedly we don't want to go extinct. So we should, we should start talking about uh, dramatically different solutions. Uh, you know, stuff that's outside the box of what you hear on cable TV today. Yeah, that's that's my favorite. My number one uh, position of his, too, is the human centered capitalism part. Just the the and you can do that. He can do that in 30 seconds in the office, you know, exactly. Yeah. Order, boom, done, you know, and it, that is such a massive shift that it's it it cannot be understated like yeah just getting getting the ideas right on how we're actually doing and getting rid of this old old you know the old metrics or at least having them factor in less than something like a childhood success rates and exactly you know like how schools are being funded and you know shit like that so yeah, big time. It's my favorite. I mean, I obviously love the freedom dividend, but that's my favorite one too. Yeah. In terms of, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, um, and you know, as I dug into his policies more and more, like I find a lot of stuff in there that I like. Um, but but really, those yeah, the the human centered capitalism, kind of that uh, reimagining and repackaging of what our economy is like, and and I think it's framed very well, you know. Uh, I I feel like it's a reform that could actually like get a whole lot done. And like you said, it's actually not that hard to do. Like you just change the metrics. That's something that can be done fairly easily. Like, uh, yeah, I, it's not like a bill you got to pass through fucking Congress and hope Mitch McConnell doesn't burn it on the Senate floor. You know? Right. This is, I, like very easy. Very I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, like I understand why other candidates don't adopt UBI because it, it really is a big lift. And if you already have like a platform with a lot of big lifts in it, I could see how you don't want to tack that on. Uh, but I have no clue why other candidates aren't looking at, you know, the American scorecard proposal and uh, stealing that 
because they yeah. absolutely well, it's should. a matter of time. Bernie just took democracy dollars, so it's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a matter of time. I heard something about that. I haven't looked into the details, but that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not it, and maybe steals the wrong word. He recognizes it's a it's a good <laughs> idea and uh, could radically transform. Uh, you know, without just saying, okay, the the oh, they're so corrupt. You know, they have so much money. Instead of like trying to tackle it, you know, like top down, be like, let's stop that. We could fix it bottom up. We can wash that shit out ourselves without having, and they'll just become irrelevant. You know, it's like eight to one, I think, under Andrew's plan. I don't know what Bernie's plan is like, uh, what the numbers are like for, um, I think it was, I don't know. But yeah, like I, I love that one too, for sure. Democracy dollars is, is super cool. And uh, Pete's been talking, he's been taking some more talking points too, which <laughs> is fine. I think that they should credit Andrew with bringing those ideas right uh to the public conversation you know you got you got them all using uh, phrases like fourth industrial Re- revolution now and talking about automation uh and it's just like guys come on like give you a little credit oh yeah no, <laughs> joe biden was like super overt about stealing his talking points and and it's like you clearly when it comes out of joe biden's mouth you know the guy has no clue what he's talking about like he was you know this is the same guy in the debate that was talking about using a record player to play words to your child. Yeah. Like, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't know anything about technology, but he, and Andrew said as much, like, you know, after the, what maybe the first debate, Joe Biden was like, Hey, we got to talk about this uh, fourth industrial revolution stuff, you know? And then the next thing, you know, Biden's on like late night TV, like with the same talking points. It's just, it's, it's very hollow. Like, yeah. um, I don't know. I'm, uh, it, it's kind of amazing that I find myself in the, you know, the middle of a presidential, uh, campaign, uh, because I'm generally a very like politically cynical person <laughs> and, you know, people like Joe Biden, like I, I, I look at him and I just see like, you know, uh, kind of a hollow actor, like someone that's just trying to take a role, but I don't, I don't see like his genuine, like human interest in you know increasing the well-being of the public anything like that i i just i don't feel it when he talks you know I don't oh know. yeah he's he's a uh, status quo status joe exactly uh, he's like not he's not looking he's not looking forward he's looking backward to you know to oh what what did we do there how can we do that a little bit better he does he's not he doesn't have any forward looking ideas they're all kind of all his ideas are kind of backwards, which if you've seen that meme out there, not left, not right, backward, Biden 2020. I oh, that. I just shared it the other day. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I made that shit, guys. So. Oh, it cracked me up, dude. Yeah. Uh, it was great. <laughs> it was great. Well, I love and, it. And I kind of, unfortunately, that's what I feel out of the, the Democratic Party more generally is kind of this, uh, in a weird way, like we were all mad that Trump was selling the public uh, this sort of nostalgia of the past. But then when you look at what the Democratic Party is selling this year, it's like nostalgia. It's the same thing. And it's like when you're talking about the the Green New Deal, and I I, I support it. Um, I Obviously, we need like radical changes uh, in our infrastructure in order to, uh, you know, combat climate change. But 
we already had a new deal in this country, right? Like branding it the Green New Deal is an attempt to to tap into that nostalgic past. And it's like, I, th I think we need to be more forward looking than that. Um, so I feel like this is a problem with our, our just our whole political system generally is we it's hard to uh, to get any of it to be forward looking. We're always trying to sell someone something nostalgic. Yeah. And the old the old paradigms, the old rules, they don't work anymore. And I, we can we should all be able to tell that. <laughs> so I don't I don't know why people are kind of clinging to these these dead ideas. You know, I'm like, how can we make that work? I'm like, uh, how about we start from scratch? How about you just right. <laughs> go to go to a whiteboard and look at what the problems are and like come up with a new way to how to fix it? No, like how, how what what can we add on to this fucking million year old falling apart piece of shit? <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> how about we build something new for once? Let's get I some think. let's get some Lego movie magic happen up in this country. <laughs> we need to work together. Well, beautiful. <laughs> I mean, look at what the last couple of decades have been. Like it's it's all been new, right? Like uh the the internet and the the communication technologies that we enjoy and we're now you have like billion dollar companies that were started by like a couple of people in a basement or like uh I'm trying to remember Instagram, I think it only had like a dozen or a couple dozen employees when it sold for like a billion dollars, something like that. Like it, the, the rules of the economy today are like completely different than anything, you know, uh, Adam Smith or anybody would have envisioned. Like we just, we live in a different world and I think we need to, to come at it organically instead of assuming we already know everything. Um, All right. You got me uh, listening to uh, the, Oh, the lecture series about history that uh, Yuval Harari has on his channel. And, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I really thought, um, I'm not finished with it. I still have a couple of lessons left, but I thought one of the things he identified that, that I thought was a really powerful narrative was how much human societies advanced when we started admitting to ourselves that we don't know everything and, and how held back human societies were back when we had um, ideologies that just assumed that they were the total package. And, you know, we, we, we already know everything that we need to know. And so there's no need for innovation. And, you know, at some point we stopped telling ourselves that and we said, no, actually we don't know. And we're going to go explore how things work. And that's, that really seems to be like where we started getting like a lot of huge returns from technology and it really started improving our lives. And I think that uh, that intellectual humility is something that we could just use so much more of. Like we just need to increase the dose on that. Oh, totally. And he he's one of my favorite thinkers. I have not watched that lecture series. Uh, I love I love his books, and I've seen a couple little things that he's done here and here and there. But I I haven't gone through and done the done the whole lecture series. And I I totally need to do that because this guy's just he's brilliant. He's he's very fascinating. I've, I'm lucky in that I have a lot of listening time at work. So yeah, I went through like most of that stuff in like two or three days and just nice. have all day to grind on it. But, um, but yeah, like he, he made a, a several interesting points that, you know, I thought were fascinating. It's worth listening to uh, regardless of where you come from on that stuff. I know uh, sometimes in the academic work, people like, again, like it, it becomes like some type of, 
exercise with like tribal identifiers and like, well, this group of people likes this academic, you know, personality because they happen to say like these particular things. And uh, it's, it's not like what, what academia is supposed to be, which is, you know, that, that open exchange and refining of ideas to, to get closer to the truth. Oh yeah. What's happening in uh, academia is pretty scary. Actually, I like the highest ranks of academia in this country um, yeah. and elsewhere, I assume as well. Um, yeah. And that that's a scary thing. Like these are supposed to be the bastions of, of free <laughs> thought and exchange of ideas. And, you and know, don't feel don't feel too bad nonsense. about it. I think it's always kind of been that way. You know, <laughs> like, well, I think um, the, the academic system has always kind of been kissing up to the the power structures um unfortunately because that's how it sustained itself you know i think uh the more and more uh independence and freedom we can give academic researchers i think i think overall you know in the long run the closer we'll get to, to better answers absolutely and that was actually one of my, uh, I, I had a backpedal that I wanted to do and touch something else and then I forgot what it was. <laughs> but um, what are some of your visions for the future that maybe you wish Yang would talk about more? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit glad that <laughs> Yang doesn't share like all of my rhetoric or my outlook, or if he does share it, he's quiet about it because I think, I think a lot of it's just like a little bit too radical for people today. Um, kind of one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I got, I got maybe around uh, 2011, 2012 or so, I really got into this vision of uh, the post-scarcity economy. And I started talking to people about it and I realized like, man, it, it just doesn't work when you want to talk to people about what the world might look like, you know, 50 or 75 years in the future. Um, in part because of the thing uh, Yang says about, you know, the mindset of scarcity and the mindset of, of abundance, like people have their heads down and they can't think five years into the future. They can't, they can't think about next week. They got to make rent this week. Like they don't, yeah. they don't have that excessive bandwidth to just play with to, to, to try to, explore all the all the available ideas about the future and so I don't know, you know it's it's perfectly okay to me that there's a lot of stuff i think about the future that i don't hear coming out of yang's mouth um because i i think it just wouldn't work <laughs> like it's it hasn't worked in my own experience like and that's one of the reasons that that really pushed me to start thinking about um conversations that are more relevant to people stuff that's like closer to the ground like basic income um, and you know, if someone's like really into that stuff and they dig into, uh, you know, the studies and they learn like how it, how it changes people's psychology and the, their mindset, um, maybe then they're ready for a conversation about like, well, what happens after that? You know, what happens if, uh, labor and income become entirely separate from each other and we have no more expectation that you're going to earn your your right to access goods. Instead, you just have a right to access goods and you're probably going to participate because uh, we've set up society in such a kick-ass way that it would be less fun to not participate. Like, 
the, to me, uh, instead of like the carrots and sticks, there's just so much, uh, just just so many options for tapping into our like natural intrinsic motivation to to get people to participate in society on their own terms. Um, that I, I think in the future, you know, we won't have to pay people for work. Um, we'll we'll still want to make sure everyone has access to the things they need. And I'd like to talk about needs at some point because I have a, I have a very uh, uh, a very holistic take on needs. I don't whenever whenever people talk about needs, a lot of the time they're talking about just you know the the base like this is your like needed caloric intake for the day. This is you know the very basic thing you need. And to me, needs is like a much more broad conversation um, about like you know how how humans function and what allows humans to function at their peak and how can we how can we satisfy those needs in order to get everyone up to you know whatever their own personal level of like self-actualization is how can we how can we get the most out of everybody how can we make the whole the system as a whole function at its peak yeah man <laughs> um so uh i think i've i think i've got something i could I could take us into uh, it's basically just like what it what it means to have like an ecologically sound society. Yeah, let's um, get into it. Yeah, so um, so to just kind of jump off on that, like, uh, so when you you look at like the world today, how we're structured, like obviously uh, we're not ecologically sound. Like we uh, on the biggest scale. Um, you have like a, a couple hundred nation states, roughly, uh, you know, competing, kind of jockeying for a position. And uh, that's preventing us from having a meaningful discussion about how we're going to collaborate as a planet to resolve, uh, you know, our ecological condition. Uh, and right now, like, you know, you have this giant externality of climate change that's just like threatening the future of the whole system. And yet you still have players within that system that are like either absolutely in denial or uh, they recognize the danger and they're actually trying to leverage it as power against like the weaker players in that system, which is super fucked. It's, <laughs> it's really messed up. Um, but so what I see uh, kind of coming down the, the, the pike is uh, you have all these uh, technologies that are coming that, that have a type of uh, a decentralizing tendency to them. Uh, mm. You know, the internet being one of them. Uh, there's, if you listen to Jeremy Rifkin, he also talks about, you know, the, the logistical and the energy internet that are on their way. And, uh, you know, all of those things will combine and we'll, we'll have an Internet of Things someday. And I actually think it's that process is going to provide us with a lot of tools so that uh, just regular everyday humans will actually be able to organize around the planet and uh, do a lot more to make progress on the front of bringing our societies into alignment with, you know, the demands of the natural world. Uh, Cause if we don't do that, we're just, we're just going to fuck ourselves. Right. <laughs> like there's no upside 
to um, just tripling down on like climate change denial and seeing what happens. Uh, so that's, I, I think we're, we're in a really uh, polarizing process where like either we're going to be smart enough to do the things that need to be done. And that's going to lead to like, you know, the ideal beautiful outcome, or uh, we're not going to be smart enough to do that. And we're going to keep screwing each other over like all the way to hell. And I, I don't think, you know, a hundred years from now, there's going to be a whole lot of middle ground. Um, in Yang's book, he talks about, you know, the future is either going to be uh, Star Trek or Mad Max. I think a lot of people sense that, that the process that we're in is extremely polarizing. And that's one reason why we kind of have to, to hold society together and try to come out on the good end of that process. Um, so that's, it's one reason why I would definitely caution against the sort of, uh, tribalistic, uh, polarizing impulses that we all have, you know, and try to, uh, instead reach for the narratives that can bring us together. Yeah. And, and say that it's, you know, okay to actually talk again, because people have gotten this, uh, this mindset of, of, isolation from you know one's own group's isolation from you can't even sit down and talk with them you can't you can't even be friends with you know that person who disagrees with you about this thing and i think we need to get the fuck over that too you know that's just i mean it's tearing this fucking world apart you know so that's one of the fundamental parts of the the whole tribalism thing that if we if we just like make conversation possible again and actually show that that is possible uh, and get that to go viral. That's, that's a first step right? to, to solving so many of these fucking issues. It's just like conversation. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I'm excited about podcasts like this and the moving forward podcast. And you see this sort of uh, wave of not exactly backlash, but a, a kind of, uh, you know, antithesis to the uh, the polarizing narratives. Uh, you have these narratives that are trying to bring people together in spite of differences. Like, and and the narrative itself is like overt about that. It's like we are we have differences, and we need to get past them. You know, I think I think those narratives are positive. You know, obviously some differences are just really big. And it's going to be like next to impossible to bridge those things. But uh, I think a lot of our differences are actually not that big. And we let we let a lot of ideological baggage uh, get in our way. And that's yeah, that's something we need to, to get past. I know. Um, so I'm I'm like a pretty like, I don't know, maybe you call like a utopianist type thinker. Um, I have like these really high hopes for the future if things go correctly. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm also like very realistic about the chances of everything going well. Um, it's probably not good, right? <laughs> but um, I, I think uh, if, if you're in that camp of people that want to see the future turn out uh, beautiful and you want it to, to serve all people, um, I think you, you have to look at where people are at today and you have to meet them where they're at and, and bring them along for the journey. You can't just be mad at them because they're not where you're at. And so I, I don't know. I feel like this is, um, 
this is a failing I see a lot where um, people are just frustrated and they're they're angry that the rest of the public isn't just uh, you know already at the solution and when I look at that situation I'm like well well clearly the task we have is to bring the public along it's, it's not to uh, shit on the public for being like backwards or wrong-headed or something but instead to to engage them where they're at and and make the direction that we all need to take um, understandable and palatable and th that's going to be what moves people and so i don't you know uh like i mentioned you know conversations like this or like the moving forward podcast like these are these are really valuable conversations that can help uh, i don't know soften the edges of those those ideological divisions and we can see that there's like there's a deeper layer of politics that we can all uh, hopefully we can all agree on you know, if we're if we're sane people, um, we can we can all agree that we don't want to go extinct. Things like that. Right. man. <laughs> we don't want kids to be, you know, starving to death or, or in cages or whatever. Not to get too oh, yeah. crazy hyperbolic. But uh, yeah, we should we should should all have common human values that we in theory should be able to all agree with. And I think making a concerted effort to establish those is super important and your part about um meeting people where they are is incredibly important because you see the kind of default mode for the democrats now seems to be like oh we're targeting we we, we got our base we're, we're we're targeting swing voters we're targeting you know this demographic this colored skin demographic here and there they're they're playing all that shit game and they, they're like you know some of them you, you see when they go on Fox News or something, oh, why would you go on? They're not talking to the whole country. You know, they're playing to their base and they're playing to the margins. And right. they're ignoring half the country. And, you know, especially with how divisive the current administration is, you have people walking around in this country who really believe that half of the country is Nazis. And if that were, <laughs> if that was the case... It would be terrifying, but that's not the case. And we need to not write off half the country for, you know, who they voted for, for example, because right. I've had some beautiful people on the show that also happen to vote for Trump, you know, and now they're supporting Andrew. And these are not like white supremacist backwards <laughs> shitheads. These are these are real people and their stories are are diverse and, and dynamic and, and nuanced and you can't you know, just getting over this, like trying to put each other in boxes thing. It's just like, that's so fundamental to the, the whole thing. And watching this unfold is like a natural kind of property a natural characteristic of, of this whole Yang wave is just like seeing that happening and seeing people coming together. And right. it's just like, it's almost just this emergent thing. It's just happening naturally, which is kind of weird. And that's why I'm thinking it's unstoppable. Like, you know, the policy, the, the the rest of it, the ideas, it's all good. It, they're, they're all so good, but this is like the underlying thing that's like, I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think you can stop it because you see the, the f most polarized are, ju are just getting 
you see people coming from the center to go like, whoa, 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 buddy, <laughs> a little too far, you know, like let's, let's, let's bring it back to the core. Let's bring it back to, you know, like bring it back to the campfire. Let's talk. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that starting to arise just because people are so tired and exhausted of all the fucking bullshit. So this this reemergence of discourse is a, a beautiful fucking thing, and uh, I'm just happy to ride the wave, man. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and I th- I think uh, a lot of what we see uh, inside the Yang Gang, like the kind of ideological diversity you see there, versus um, maybe some of the other Democratic campaigns, I think it has a lot to do with Yang's framing. Um, to me, whenever I like listen to, uh, you know, the way he expresses himself, and when I read like his policies, how he's how he's chosen to frame those things, um, I I see someone who is a systems thinker, who is interested in engaging with the country as a whole, and you don't see that inside of a lot of the the Democratic Party discussions. And I think this is a huge mistake. Um, we we should be looking at our country as a system as a whole. And if you're if you're only looking at like imagine it's an ecosystem, right? And you're only accounting for half the ecosystem. Like what? How can you even have like a a, a good idea about what to do with the whole thing? If you've literally like written off the well-being of half of an ecosystem, like we're Clearly, that's that's like a recipe for disaster, and that's kind of the the status quo, you know, electoral politics is just to be, you know, us versus them, uh, you know, hyperpartisan, and to to battle over, you know, ideological symbols. And I think, uh, you know, when Yang talks about uh, just putting cash in everybody's hands, all of a sudden he's got everyone's attention, and when you look at like what the effects of that would be, you're talking about like an increase of well-being for the, for the society as a whole. Like you're talking about the increasing the well-being of the system. And, you know, if you, as he says, if you get the economic boot off of people's throats, um, they can have a conversation about, you know, higher order things, things that really matter in the the long term. Uh, And to me, we really need to get to that conversation. Uh, is super important. And when you have most of society struggling to get by, you know, just paycheck to paycheck, I'm one of those people. Uh, You know, you you have a really limited capacity about uh, discussing things like climate change. Um, We we just, we need to get people, you know, uh, to to a place of reasoning where we can actually have a rational conversation about how we're going to basically what I see the, the future political project is how to manage the biosphere. Um, and I don't see our current uh, political system is set up to, to have that conversation. So I, we're going to need to free up a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we, we have to have some, some pretty major reforms before we're really going to be in a position to tackle climate change. Um, and I think Yang's one of the few people being honest about that. Like a lot of the candidates talk about how we're going to like defeat climate change. And it's like, well, it's going to, it's going to get us some already. 
Like, like some right. negative effects are already locked in and we need to be honest about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Give me two seconds, bro. I'm going to grab the charger. Yeah. This fucking thing is dying. One second. Yeah, that's another thing about Yang that I, I really appreciate is that he's actually being honest about climate change. Right. And he's saying, no, guys, it's like actually way worse. <laughs> and we need to we need to start just being like proactive. We can't just do less of the bad. We need to do more of the good, you know, as he said. And this is why I love that he's he's like geoengineering. I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah. Space mirrors. <laughs> fuck, yeah. Like, let's oh, yeah. let's get nerdy on this shit. We're gonna oh, have man. To. We, need, we have to, we absolutely have to carbon capture all of it. Carbon neutral fuels, uh, nuclear needs to be huge, like key. Like if we start pushing towards fusion, once we hit fusion, it's like fucking, we're like, that's going to be, I think the biggest part of, uh, like culturally, like what we, what we've been talking about culturally to shift towards that that Star Trek future that we all want. That's what Andrew's the movement that he's really starting in this country, which is fucking crazy. Oh, yeah. But the technological parts, you know, it's going to be things like um, quantum computing and biotechnology and cellular agriculture and robotics and artificial intelligence and, you know, like all that. But like to make that, it's like nuclear has to be, like at least the fucking stepping stone, you know, to get us to fusion. Fusion's gonna be the thing that's like, okay, we have starships now. <laughs> Once we get Waster Fusion, it's like poof, everything else is right <laughs> blown out of the water. I can't wait. <laughs> I was gonna ask you because you you're you're a bit of a utopian and I, I kind of I kind of am as well. What do you, who do you wanna be in that future? Like, what do you want to do? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I want to survive to see it. <laughs> that's that's about as far as I can think through it. <laughs> like, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm terrified that it won't happen. You know, I'm, I'm terrified that like the writing's on the wall and, and the worst case scenario is going to just keep unfolding itself. Um, but yeah, I don't know if we can, if we can turn things around and, and I think we can, but it's just, you know, looking at it in, in terms of like probability, I, th I think we have our work cut out for us. Um, oh yeah. It's something we have to do though. Yeah. Like we have, the alternative is, is unacceptable. Well, we the, have to do it. That's the thing is like, I don't even know what the point of talking about like, the other outcome is because it's like, well, then we're fucked. I don't know. <laughs> like, but uh, yeah, I don't know. What would I do in the future? Um, oh, geez. Probably go on a long vacation <laughs> and, and then find some way to contribute. Uh, mm. I, I would just be so happy to be free from like daily pressures that we all suffer from right now. Um, it's, it's hard to game out like, I don't know what I would do with that. Uh, I know that if I could, this is something I've been talking about a lot 
online is uh, if if we did get the freedom dividend, um, I'm probably one of those people that could actually survive on it. And if I couldn't survive on it uh, just solely on its own, I could you know supplement my myself with a little bit of part time work and get by. Uh, I would be looking to increase my my volunteerism just just so much more than currently I'm able to do. Uh, just because that's the type of work that like feels really good to me. Um, I I love it when there's like a real need and when you can go in and directly fulfill it yourself. Like that's and it doesn't really matter what it is. It just feels good to participate in that process. And I think I think there'd be a lot of people. I think you'd see volunteerism go through the roof if we had a freedom dividend. And then we could we could talk about you know prioritizing. Uh, our various social ills and how to best address them. Uh, we could we could really make major changes in society if everyone just had a little bit of wiggle room in their own economic life. Right to do things that they find meaning in. I mean, because how many people feel? How many people derive that level of meaning from their nine to five? Like, not not very many. Like there's polling yeah. on this stuff, and uh, most people feel uh, disengaged. Um, I read an article one time suggesting that up to like one fifth of the workforce actively sabotages the workplace because they hate it so much. It's like, think about the inefficiency of just forcing people to work a job they hate. And so they, they fuck up the process because they hate it so much. And then you're just wasting so much in that. Just like, let those people like have a little freedom, like just, just let them out and <laughs> And let the people in that want to be there and you have like a smoother operation. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, are are you familiar with uh, David Graeber? Uh, I am not. Uh, He's a economic anthropologist um, at the London school of economics. Uh, But he recently did uh, some work on the notion of bullshit jobs, just like, how many of the jobs in our economy serve no purpose? They don't improve anyone's situation or lives, and they just exist to keep people busy. And he actually did some surveys uh, and came up with a number, I think it was somewhere around 40% of people uh, self-reporting their own job as serving no purpose. And it's it's like, think about that. Like, like almost half of people who are working just just feel like they're serving no purpose at all like that's what does that do to the human spirit like it's 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 violence it's it's just it's violence to force people into positions of servitude where they toil away day after day and feel no connection to the process they're involved in and it's it's even if you don't care about you know the suffering of people it's it's incredibly inefficient it's a giant waste it would be a huge contributor to climate change if we thought about it in those terms just bullshit jobs uh if you if you cut out like half the work in the economy you'd be talking about a lot less you know carbon in the atmosphere <laughs> so it's like there's just a, right. a lot of stuff out there that 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 doesn't need to be done that's being done there's a lot of stuff out there that needs to be done that's not being done and it's and it's all because we have these like 
fucked up notions of what value is and what work is. And that's exactly where I was going to go. Hell yeah. Like, like on, on a societal level, we don't value the things that produce the most value innovations and, you know, space exploration, um, you know, the creatives of the world who, who, you know, create some of our biggest cultural, you know, like exports to the rest of the world. We write, you know, our culture is writ large across the world and it's because of our creatives, our film producers, our, our musicians, our artists, you know, oh, yeah. and like culturally, like here in the U S we don't, we don't, there's no market value for that kind of thing typically, or it's hyper corporatized and you have to sell your soul to get into it. And I think that that, that is just fundamentally going to have to change. Um, it's un, it's unsustainable, you know, like moving forward. Well, like I was, uh, I was kind of thinking about my first, encounter with uh this this rising abundance paradigm that that i and others perceive um my my kind of introduction to it was in high school whenever napster came out and all of the sudden you have access to all of the music and you don't have to pay for it and it it, it broke all the rules of the economy that had existed previously like you know, you had to have some sort of medium to put the music on and you had to have a company like in charge of that, you know, producing thousands of CDs or tapes or whatever. Um, and now all of a sudden everyone can just share and they can share digitally, you know, peer to peer. And so you had the RIAA suing like high school kids for stealing music. And of course, that, the kids didn't have any money. So a lot of times they would. I, re I read this one story about this guy that was working at a record store, working his way through college. He had some college savings, like maybe ten or $11,000 or something. And as soon as the RIAA figured out that they could target this guy and he had $10,000, they, they took it and they, they fucking crushed his life. And it's like, what, what, what sense does this make that we have these mechanisms of abundance, technological abundance, you know, and yet we have these economic rules that come from yesteryear. And they're, they're literally just destroying people's lives for enjoying the technical reality. You know, uh, if you look at the work of people like Buckminster Fuller, uh, he was talking about the, the rising economy of, of abundance, uh, you know, the, the abundance that technology can provide. He was talking about this stuff like way back in the 60s. Or uh, Murray Bookchin is an anarchist philosopher that's a favorite of mine who was also talking about, uh, you know, post-scarcity and uh, the rise of abundance. Um, he was even writing about uh, autonomous vehicles like back in the 60s and like how that's gonna impact the economy. And like there's, there's all these visionaries that see that this abundance is either coming or here. And yet uh, we're still running society on this old software that, that says everything is scarce and we all have to fight over it. And that's just not the technical reality. That, that we know anymore. And I think increasingly in the future, like the, the, the technical reality is just gonna get more and more obvious. Um, it, it's, it's gonna be unstoppable at some point, uh, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, well, the rise of, the rise of podcasters and YouTubers is, is a good uh, 
canary in the coal mine for this because it used to be once upon a time if you wanted your voice to go out on airwaves you had to go through channels to get hired at a radio station go on at a certain time and play certain things and then we have these mediums now where people can create whatever the fuck they want and get huge global audiences and connect people from everywhere you know so just just that fundamental ability to like like literally anybody can do this now. So yeah, it's just totally fundamentally shifted. Like it's, it's going to be impossible to ignore at some point when, when uh, kids can become millionaires playing uh, video games on YouTube and uh, other kids will go and spend years of their life putting themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for a college degree. That's, for a dying industry that's just about to be automated away anyway. Right. You know what I mean? Like imagine, imagine somebody who's going through school right now to be a radiologist or something like they're going to be, <laughs> they're, they're putting themselves away in debt for something that a robot's going to be able to do better. They can already do better, you know? So it's like, it's, it has to change. It's just, it's managing that transition. That's going to be the challenge. It's changing either way. Like, oh Yeah. No, and that's that's the thing is like the technology is delivering uh, access, right? So, like it back in the days of Napster, it was delivering access to all this all this digital information that previously we we had no access to, and now we're getting access to like uh, really sophisticated software tools, you know. So you're you're getting access to uh, platforms that have a global reach. Um, and I, I think uh, this is one of the the real, uh, I don't know, you could say hallmarks of the new economic model is uh, increasingly people are going to have access to the things they need and want. And the question is not going to be about making people earn things, but it's going to be more about uh, how do we you know, raise up healthy, competent human beings that want to participate in the economy and in society. How do we how do we make society attractive so that people just naturally show up to participate? Because uh, the the carrots and sticks, it's not going to work the way it did in the past. You're not just going to be able to withhold access um, because that'll that'll start a fucking war. Like uh, one of the things. Um, that really stuck out with one of the, the lectures of uh, Yuval Harari that I'm, I'm still trying to get through like this area of his thinking to understand it better. But one of the things he was projecting into the future was uh, these, these different classes of humans, some which remain biological and some which, you know, kind of take the sort of transhumanist route. And uh, to me, that's so frightening uh, because in a world of like, nanotechnology uh where like you could potentially have like the power of world war ii just in your pocket um thinking about uh violent clashes between uh various class systems is just hugely dangerous like that's the sort of action i really do think that could destroy the biosphere and really undermine our ability to continue living you know in any sort of quality and that's i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but uh, in my opinion, one of the things you really need to achieve in order to reach an ecological society is is a sort of base egalitarianism, 
where we're not dividing people into uh, classes that have animosity with each other. Uh, I think I think access to goods and services is is one way of achieving that. Again, kind of like a foot in the door strategy uh, for for bringing people up into a, a healthier economic situation. Right, I, and I think that we should be treating all of these uh, they all of these technological advancements. They need to be applied universally, you know, in terms of access and stuff. So, you know, we need to have a system in which, you know, if, if our biotechnology is so good that if somebody, uh, loses a limb or something and we have the technology to regrow that limb, you know, like we should be doing that, whether you're a billionaire or a homeless person, you know, like having that, that kind of hierarchical, you know, where only the people at the tippity tippity top get access to, you know, designer babies and, and, you know, cybernetic implants and, and, you know, they can hook their brain up to the internet and, you know, have all, all these, uh, you know, extra crazy capabilities, you know, that humans don't. And this is why I love, I love the book Homo Deus because it gets really kind of deep into this and it is, it does get very, scary dystopian sounding when you think of like okay what if it's not evenly distributed right you know we're going to have a new species a new species of human living alongside uh the current one that's more advanced than us and if you studied evolution you know that does not end well it sounds like a recipe for disaster to me (laughs) oh totally so yeah we need to be very very careful in the applications of these technologies and and have it at at the core of our ethos that we need to be applying them universally so that we prevent this kind of, you know, extreme polarized thing of, uh, you know, abundance and, and need. Right. You know, kind of just along the whole theme, theme of the conversation there. Yeah. I see, um, I see the, uh, the strategy of open source, as like playing a big role there in allowing people to have access. So like open source stuff is accessible basically to everyone. And some of the software is, is excellent, top notch. And, you know, it's actually competing with uh, the, the major proprietary software in, in a lot of the corporate arena. Um, oh, totally. I love open source, man. We need to like make that the new default. We for like academic literature to, you know, like books. Oh, hell yeah. Fucking like everything needs there needs to be an open source uh quote market, you know, for for these things and I'm actually making one for sounds and and music and stuff for creators to design uh, you know, whatever they want with. And I I fucking love open source, man. I'm all about it. Yeah, I think I think that's really um kind of the ethos of that community. That's, that's, that's something that needs to become universal. And we, uh, one of the things Rifkin talks about is the, uh, the rise of the, the collaborative commons or like the collaborative economy. Um, oh yeah. And it's, and it's like, that's, that's, you know, that is the open source world. And I think so much of, I don't know the answers we're looking for in social organization. I think you can you can find them on the internet already. Like people are living it out in their lives, 
uh, we just haven't learned how to scale those things for like the the size of the problems we have. But I I have uh, I don't know some level of confidence that we'll figure that out. I I think eventually we're we're going to want that collaborative uh, that collaborative commons to uh, envelop the whole biosphere, and and that's going to be what helps us to manage this stuff. Because um, just on the ecological level, I don't think the uh, the radical stratification that you see in today's society, like the huge amount of distance between the top and the bottom, I don't. If that continues, it's it's not going to play out well for the environment. Like uh, one of uh, basically Murray Bookchin's big uh, premise in social ecology is that there's a relationship between uh, humans dominating the environment and humans dominating each other. And so the way we treat the environment is actually like a reflection of the relationships we have with each other. And so I think uh, by bringing in an economic model that uh, has a more egalitarian structure to it, I think that will actually aid us in becoming the type of humans that can manage the biosphere. Yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of self-perpetuating. Um, like when you were talking about scaling open source stuff, it's already to the point with a lot of things that like the open source versions are better because they're they're collaboratively built. If you look at um, like Electric Sheep is a good example of like it's the most crazy, unique screensaver that that exists anywhere. And it's because it's like these these sheep people from all over the world design the sheep that get put into the flock and the ones that it's kind of like an evolutionary thing that the, the more beautiful ones that people like will mate with other sheep that other people like and it creates these patterns that like no no individual you know designer or programmer will like come up with them by themselves and that just became the best thing you know like the it, it will get to a point where the best version of one thing will be found, you know, in the or the best documentaries will be open source. The best, um, oh hell yeah, the music and uh, and movies and uh, art and everything that, and it will just be so available. This free, open availability, abundance thing that there's going to be less and less of a market for the kind of corporatized, prepackaged content, you know, subscription type exactly thing. And, uh, you know, this, this gets to a little bit to, um, you know, the core of Mindwave, which was like very first thing. We're like, we're not fucking running ads. We're not doing that model. If we're going to grow at all, we're going to grow organically. Um, and it's going to be together, you know, like within a grow, growth hierarchy, not like a dominance thing. Um, and our connection got interrupted there for a second. Yeah, so I, I started to lose my train of thought, but it didn't cut all the way off. So I was like, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> but shit, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, so, I don't know where I was going. <laughs> so uh, something you reminded me of, I have a little anecdote here. Uh, so uh, when I first started college, um, they're, they're talking to you about, you know, researching and sourcing and citing and, uh, when I first started college, the rule was never, ever, never use Wikipedia. And, and then a couple years in, someone said, uh, you know, one of the instructors says like, well, don't cite Wikipedia, but look at the sources at the bottom of the page and use those because that's, those are good, you know? And, but by my last semester of uh, my undergraduate program, my professor 
was pulling up Wikipedia and teaching off of it. <laughs> and it's and it's because it is just as reliable or more reliable than Britannica or the old encyclopedia models. Um, because everyone does have their fingers in the pie, right? And, yeah. and it's self-improving, it's self-correcting, it's yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like we never everyone all of a sudden got real skeptical when Wikipedia came on the scene. And it's like, you know, really, you guys should have been skeptical all along instead of just believing whatever Britannica had to say or believing whatever, you know, the previous encyclopedias had to say, because they, they had problems too. They had errors. But all of a sudden, everyone's super skeptical whenever you have like a, a sort of a open source peer-to-peer -peer model. And it turns out it's just as good or better. You know, so I don't know. I, I see... Uh, even just in that little like example, I saw like a big cultural change in the span of a few years where uh, Wikipedia went from entirely taboo to actually being like presented as like an excellent source in class. And it was, you know, that was the course of a degree program. Yeah, that's nuts. And I mean, it's it's true. Like if if especially if it's like a physics thing or something like that something like math related like it is pretty much guaranteed to be accurate if it's on there so if you want to learn about black holes wikipedia is going to give you the right information you know right you don't have to like question if it gets fuzzy when you're like d-list celebrities personal <laughs> lives and shit you know but that's well, and who wants to use wikipedia for that <laughs> and here's the other thing is um let's say you think wikipedia is inaccurate you have some like bone to pick you can read the conversations that went into constructing the article. You can read the things that, you know, the, the kind of, I don't, I don't know the exact hierarchy that goes on behind the scenes, but you know, there's like lead moderators that help curate the content and they explain their reasoning and all of that stuff is open as well. You know, if I had some suspicion that, you know, some, you know, old Britannica encyclopedia was inaccurate, I didn't have access to any of the information that went into compiling it. Uh, but all of that stuff's just entirely open on Wikipedia. And I think I think that's really like the future of the economy is it's not going to be so much about who is in a position to make what decision. But instead, it's going to be about, um, you know, the methodologies being justified out in the open and everyone can have an opinion about it. And, you know, obviously some opinions are more qualified than others, but that's the that's the point of having like an editing process to something like that. Um, and yeah, I've, I've read a study that showed like, if you let, uh, if you let amateurs into this uh, discussion, if like, uh, you know, an educated person writes like the skeleton of the article, but then you let, you know, uh, anybody in on the details. A lot of the times, uh, people that are hobbyists or amateurs are more interested in the details and they'll do a better job of fleshing out the article. Then if you just had like, you know, a professor or some, some academic type, uh, just writing the article as a whole. So like it, that, that sort of crowdsourcing of knowledge, like really has, uh, benefits, you know, there's like a larger synergy going on there. Oh, it's hugely powerful. And it, it is totally the way of the future. This, this, uh, decentralization of, uh, of knowledge and power is, is crucial to this getting to this to the society that we've been dreaming about fondly 
over the past hour or so. <laughs> it's it's that decentralization um, because uh, otherwise it's like we end up with another library of Alexandria situation where, you know, like the the mo- the best knowledge in the world is just kept in this one place and only a tiny handful of people can access it or or you know even understand it you know so it's it's a trend that's been happening for for really for like thousands of years because you look at um within religion within like catholicism or whatever like the bible was in latin and it was delivered in Latin and, ma- and uh, mass on Sunday, but the people didn't speak Latin. They didn't understand what was being said. And uh, getting your hands on one of these books was like, you know, like, oh, no, no, no. You know, you, you can't. That's that's holy. You, right. you can't know what it means. You can't know what's in there. And then it got translated and it was like, oh, shit, what do we do now? And then having the translation was like this. Fuck, no, don't have that. And then the printing press came along and all of a sudden the book's fucking everywhere. So it was kind of like this, this is like early seeds of uh, of that shit happening, of knowledge being like so concentrated just into like, you know, ivory tower elite circles and then just being disseminated. And it, it creates a wave that's just unstoppable. This this decentralized kind of natural spreading of, of information far and wide. And especially with the internet now with how interconnected the globe is you can learn literally anything about anything anywhere anytime anywhere in the universe you know you can look up the name of a star in the sky and find out exactly what its mass is and like what's exactly in there and how many planets are going around it you know like (laughs) this is it's going to radically shift everything it i mean it already is but yeah it's just navigating through this this is the really uh tumultuous time to be uh you know and it could go anywhere and that's why we have this sense of like oh fuck are we, it's, is it star trek or mad max we don't fucking know because it's like oh it could, oh, it could be real bad yeah super scary <laughs> it could be both it could be both man we could have uh you know star trek nations fighting uh, fucking mad max nations on the other <laughs> side with fucking nukes oh geez you know <laughs> yeah uh, but you yeah, know, he, he, here's to the Star Trek future. <laughs> I I really, <laughs> if we if we're not bringing everyone along, uh, I really fear for our future, and that's one of the reasons why I think we we need that uh, that systems approach. It's more uh, I think of it as a more ecological mindset where we're looking at uh, holes, you know, instead of the pieces, or instead of uh, you know, we have a sort of uh, hyper individualistic culture in the U.S. And we, we think of ourselves as so separate from other people. If you're looking at uh, society in uh, through an ecological lens, um, you're seeing that a lot of our individuality comes from those relationships that are between people. Like we couldn't we couldn't be individuals without other people. Like if, if you want to know. <laughs> I love saying this. If you want to know what a true individual looks like, Google a feral child, because that's what you get when you don't have other people around you. You get someone that can like barely speak, that can barely relate to other people, um, that, that has no social skills. And like so much of who we are is, is uh, social. Um, with the, our language, even though we have a, a natural ability to acquire language, we get our languages from other people. You know, it's not something we did on our own or that we earned. Like our even our ability to speak and think 
is a gift from other people. And I don't know, we're, our, our ties to each other are just so much more deep than uh, we perceive, especially I think here in the US, um, because we, we just have one of the most individualistic cultures that ever existed. And um, I, th I think that comes at a cost, you know, uh, we tend to not perceive the whole or the, uh, the relationships between uh, the, the players. We, we tend to just see the players. And I, th I think it's uh, the, the counter to that, the sort of ecological consciousness. I think uh, we're actually going to start understanding that through, you know, the environmental pressures that are building on us. Um, I, th I think if that if we don't learn the lesson from those pressures, then those pressures are just going to kick our ass and it's going to be violent and awful and there's going to be a lot of suffering involved. And so like we. I don't want us to pay that price, right? Like I don't, like that just sounds horrid. And instead, I I want us to uh, to have that that peak experience on the other end of the scale, where uh, we're we're all receiving that uh, that sort of benefit of synergy from from everyone doing their best, like everyone living their best life, and that's that's the version of reality. If if we're rational people, which we may not be, you know, that's the version of reality we should want. Um, no matter who you are, no matter like how well you're doing, even the the wealthiest today uh, live in constant fear and stress of you know how they're going to maintain their position and who's going to come take it from them and stuff. And it's uh, the, there's just a better world in which we're we're all doing better, um, and it's. It's it's a necessity. It's a necessity that we reach that world. Yeah. You brought it home, man. That's humanity first. That's humanity first in a nutshell. Uh and you know, this is why I actually I'm I'm incorporating Ubuntu philosophy into my kind of interpretation of what humanity first is, because yeah. it is that like I am because we are, you know, like a a human by themselves is is nothing it, it it does take a village you know to sound corny oh yeah um and that's that's all of us you know so yeah, that's that's who we are down so beautiful. down to the 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 biological level like we we are each other like we have to be or else we're not ourselves like there's the, the notion and this is a thing i'll uh, i'll bring up politics once more this is a thing in the uh the <laughs> kind of anarcho-communist worldview is that uh, the individualism and collectivism, these aren't, these are two sides of the same coin. They're not opposing principles, or at least they shouldn't be, you know. Uh, I, th I think only when the collective is doing as well as it can, do we have like the peak opportunity to be individuals and vice versa. It's only when we are allowed to be like maximally autonomous that's when we can have the healthiest collective. And I, th I think those things uh, are, there's often like a false dichotomy in our culture that like, you know, you got to go one way or the other. And really we, we should not see those things as, as opposing forces. We should, we should be looking for ways to unite those things. Beautiful. Well, that sounds like an awesome place to end it, man. <laughs> This has been fantastic. Thank you for coming on and uh, and hanging out with me for a little bit here. Oh hell yeah! Great. We should uh we should Ooh. do it again in the future.
Oh, oh absolutely, yeah. man. Because we have we have lots of areas of mutual interest. It sounds like, uh, and we are going all over the place. Like I like I've been saying, we're we're riding the Yang wave because it's impossible not to. But we have lots of crazy cool places that uh, we want to go, and uh, you definitely can plug into a few of those projects. Because uh, hell yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> we're, we're very much on the same page about a lot of this stuff. Did you have any uh, final thoughts or plugs or anything you wanted to chuck in there? Uh, yeah. So I've recently started, um, well, not recently started, but I'm, I'm putting more energy into a project uh, I'm calling Gamers for Basic Income. Uh, I want to use uh, video games, especially like online multiplayers, as a platform for spreading interest, you know, creating demand for basic income. Uh, because you you have an international audience there, and the barrier to entry for uh, online gaming is fairly low to where a lot of people can participate. I was looking up some stats before this thing, and it's like, I think maybe close to 2 billion people on Earth like play video games. And if you if you expand the notion of like gaming to be broader than video games, like any type of game, uh, that's like most people have some type of, uh, you know, gaming in their life. They, they, they enjoy like the, the hobby and the recreation of gaming. So I want to, uh, to tap into that, to connect that with economic freedom. Like, hey, you need more freedom in your life so that you can enjoy your games and uh, use the virtual space that online gaming provides as a sort of platform for organizing people to, to spread this message more broadly. And to to hopefully uh, drive up international demand for basic income through the the gaming community. Uh, so I I just started a page a few days ago, and I've had a group going for a little while, but it's been a pretty quiet project, uh, just because the campaign's been taking so much time and energy. Uh, but I'm I'm hoping to uh, put more energy into that to pull people in, uh, to create lots of original content so that. Uh, we can connect with people uh, who are not familiar with this stuff, but whose like interests would be aligned if they were familiar, and uh, hopefully organize people towards taking more steps towards that Star Trek universe, you know, that Star Trek future, uh, the beautiful economy of abundance. That's awesome, man. That's such a cool. Uh, that's so outside the box, creative thinking to use to use a platform like that to do some real good in the world and like just really get the conversation started about, about basic income. That's very cool, man. Well, we will link to that in the show notes. So gamers out there, you can get in on that project. Uh, I am a gamer, but I don't have time and I, I tend to stay away from the online ones, but <laughs> someday, uh, someday I might have to jump in on that because that sounds very cool. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks again, ma'am. Well, uh, we will talk to you soon. Yeah, I had such a good time. Thank you for what you do. Oh, this is awesome, man. It's my pleasure. Take care. Our website is mindwave.media. You can shoot us an email to mindwavepodcast at gmail.com. Give us a follow on Twitter at mindwavepodcast. And stay tuned for YouTube shit. We're going to start doing some more videos 
Uh, I have a This Week in Science video episode with Paul that is uh, several weeks old now, so that's going to end up being a That Week in Science. Uh, that'll get out ASA fucking P. Uh, other than that, appreciate you all. Thank you to everyone who is making this show possible. And uh, stay tuned. We have lots more stories to tell. So, Oh, yeah, and we are still collecting voicemails for the Humanity First series. Um, that number is 602-456-2253. Uh, share your Yang story. We'll put it on the show. It'll be awesome. We look forward to hearing from you guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Stargazer. Copyright 2019.